So here we are coming to the final verses of this uh, series through Paul's letter to the Colossians. I hope you've been encouraged by the letter. Um, I've been encouraged preparing for it and, and teaching it. And so we look now at uh, the final portion of the letter beginning uh, as we read in verse seven through the final verse, verse 18. So here at the end of this letter to the Colossians, Paul mentions 10 people who are connected to him in the ministry and in the church in Colossae. So um, these people are ministering with Paul. They're connected to Paul, uh, but they also have a connection, um, some of them at least, to the church in Colossae. Now, Paul does this at um, really at the end of most of his letters, not all of them, but most of them, he goes through a series of greetings uh, to numbers of people. And I, th I think there's a reason beyond the obvious. The obvious, of course, is he just wanted to send uh, greetings to them. But why would the Holy Spirit have uh, these included in the inspired text? Well, I think that uh, in doing this, what's happening is the Lord through Paul is reminding them and us of the many ways that Christians belong to one another in fellowship, in love, in prayer, in instruction, and in service. This is something that I think we've been even really kind of emphasizing this in our recent studies, you know, how, we, how we've looked at um, God, God's, um, the people of God in, uh, or life in the community of God as the people of God. And then, of course, we've expanded that and we've looked at uh, the people of God in the context of marriage and family and work, the workplace. And then uh, we looked at that also um, just in, in the, the larger witness to the world outside, uh, walking in wisdom toward those that are outside, uh, our speech always being with grace and, and so forth, praying and those things that we looked at. Uh, but, but it's, and I think the spirit is actually right now wanting to remind us as the people of God that that's what we are. We are the people of God. We're not to be isolated. We're not, it's not just this individual thing that I'm saved and I have a relationship with God, although that's true, but I'm part of something bigger. And what we see here with Paul in this closing portion of the letter, we see that that bigger picture of uh, all the connections that Paul had. You know, Paul's a good example of somebody that we might think uh, could have easily been sort of like a lone ranger, a guy out there on his own. He's a maverick. He's just out there charging for the Lord. He's out there planting churches and so forth. We might get that um, idea uh, sometimes about him, but when we read his letters and we see the history, we find there's nothing further from the truth. Paul was surrounded by many, many people, and he understood that, that these people were vital to the mission of God. And that's something that we need to understand as well. It is undesirable and ultimately impossible, says N.T. Wright, for any individual Christian or church to 
go it alone. And to imagine they have nothing to gain or learn from other Christians and churches. So these greetings, he says, at the end of Paul's letters, serve as a constant reminder or serve as constant reminders to us of what the gospel is all about. It is all about God and people. God and people being brought back into a loving personal relationship and people being brought together with one another in love through Christ. You see, again, the church is, is a family. The church is a collective unit. And we, we need to remember that, especially in our highly individualistic culture that we live in. We, we are the most individualistic people that have ever lived on the earth. I'm speaking broadly of, of Western culture, but that is, that is just the way we think. We think very individualistically. And, and oftentimes that bleeds over into the church. And we fail to realize that we need each other, just like Paul would say to the Corinthians, we need each other just like every body part makes a contribution to the well-being of the whole body. So that's the way the body of Christ is. So what we want to do is uh, let's, let's look at what Paul says about these people. Um, it's very brief, uh, much of what he says, and yet I think we can get some good insights as we look at uh, each of the 10 people that Paul mentions here. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking at all of this in the context of being together for the gospel. That's what I've entitled the message, actually, together for the gospel. We are in this together. And so, beginning in verse seven, we have the mention of Tychicus, uh, Tychicus, uh, there's all different uh, ways people suggest uh, for pronunciation. Uh, I think for us who are just reading strictly from English, that Tychicus is probably the, the easiest way to um, pronounce here. Now, now Tychicus, you might, um, the, the name might even be a little bit familiar, and it should be because he's mentioned five times in Scripture. So um, what, is, what does it say concerning him? Uh, Paul says that he is a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. And, and Paul says, now remember this, Paul has not been to Colossae. Uh, the idea is, most people believe that what happened is Paul's ministry base was in Ephesus, which is about 100 miles from Colossae. And what most people believe is that Epaphras, who is going to turn up here as well, Epaphras was the one who uh, received the gospel through Paul in Ephesus. He brought it back to Colossae. And so a church was established. So Paul hasn't been there, but he's got these relationships with Epaphras and others who are part of the church in Colossae. And so uh, he says about uh, Tychicus, he says, um, he's gonna tell you all the news about me. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. So Paul says, I'm gonna send, uh, I can't come. 
In other words, but Tychicus is going to come. Now, what does Paul say about him? He says, number one, he's a beloved brother. He's a brother. There was that, that bond, that, that brotherhood bond that uh, Tychicus had with Paul and the others. He says, secondly, that he was a faithful minister or uh, a faithful, this is the, the word here translated minister is the word diaconus, which is the word we get our word deacon from. And so, but the word means a, a servant. So he was a faithful servant. And when he says he was a fellow bond slave, that's really the better translation uh, because it's the Greek word uh, douloi or doulos. And, and that's a different word. So he's, uh, he's a minister in that he serves. Um, he's, he's just there. He's available. He does what needs to be done. But then Paul refers to him as a fellow, really bond slave in Christ. And Paul's talking here, not just about the activity that uh, Tychicus is involved in that's helpful, but he's talking about um, the deep commitment of his life He's given up his life. A bondservant was somebody who willingly gave up their life in service to somebody else. That's what a doulos was. And so he refers to him as not just a doulos, but Paul says a fellow doulos, because remember, that's what Paul had done as well. Paul had surrendered his entire life uh, to another, and that other was Jesus himself. So Tychicus is the first person that Paul mentions here. And then he mentions, uh, along with Tychicus, with Onesimus. Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. So he is from Colossae and they will make known to you all things which are happening here. So they're, they're gonna come and they're, they're gonna carry this letter actually and they're going to give the additional information about the things that are going on. Now, Onesimus, maybe you're saying, wait, I think I've heard that name before. Yes, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Onesimus. Remember, Paul says here he's a faithful and beloved brother. Remember, Onesimus was a slave. And he was a slave to Philemon. And so Philemon is in Colossae as well. And um, it could be here that Onesimus is coming back uh, with a letter to Philemon as well. Remember the letter that we talked about where Paul said, because uh, Onesimus was not just a slave, but he was a slave who had run away. And he had uh, encountered Paul and he had come to faith. And Paul, uh, sending him back to Philemon, he says, receive him not no longer as a servant, but receive him as a brother. And then Paul would say, if he owes you anything, put it to my account. And then he reminds Philemon, he says, not to mention you owe me your very life. And so here we see Onesimus, this former slave who is now part of this uh, group that are knit together with Paul in his ministry. Then we come to Aristarchus. And Aristarchus is mentioned five times. So uh, Tychicus and Onesimus are from Colossae. Aristarchus is one of Paul's traveling companions. He's mentioned five times. 
he is a Macedonian from Thessalonica. And so, you know, we see these people that came to faith in Jesus, probably through the influence of Paul, and then joined up with him as fellow ministers of the gospel. Now, what does it say regarding uh, Aristarchus? Paul says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner greets you. So Aristarchus was uh, imprisoned for the gospel as well. We're gonna come back to that at the end, but just keep that in mind. So he's Paul's companion. He's labors with Paul. Uh, and when Paul is arrested, he is also arrested. So Aristarchus, a fellow prisoner, and then he mentions Mark, the cousin, or more properly, the nephew of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. So here, here is Mark. And the fascinating thing about Mark reappearing here is maybe you remember back in the, um, I think it's about the 13th chapter or so of Acts, um, Mark is a traveling companion with Paul and Barnabas. And they had uh, gone on a missionary journey and in the midst of the, of the journey, Mark left them. He left the work, he, for whatever reason, it never, never tells us actually why he left, but he left and he went back to Jerusalem. So sometime later, Paul and Barnabas are going to go back and they're gonna revisit those churches that they established um, on that circuit that Mark had left them on. And so Barnabas, he says, yes, let's go. Let's visit these churches and we're gonna take Mark with us. And Paul says, no, we're not taking Mark with us. Mark left us uh, on the first journey and, you know, I'm adding a little bit, but, you know, I don't wanna risk that happening again. So Mark is not going. And then we read there that the contention became so um, radical between uh, Paul and Barnabas that they separated from each other, that they went on different paths and Barnabas chose Mark and took him with them and Paul went a different direction and he chose Silas. So we had a, a rift in this apostolic team, but the beautiful thing is we know from the later history and part of it right here that all of that was healed, all of that was mended. Paul and Barnabas, they uh, mended their differences. They once again teamed up and they were working together for the gospel in uh, places like Corinth. And, and so here we see Paul speaking of Mark. Really interestingly, um, I think kind of tenderly and sensitively. So he says to them, he says about whom you received instruction if he comes to you, welcome him. So Paul writes in advance of Mark. Maybe Mark was, um, you know, maybe he was a bit like Timothy. Maybe he was a timid sort of a person. Maybe he was easily um, intimidated or, or, you know, maybe he had a, a little bit of fear uh, regarding meeting new people or being in new environments or, or whatever. Um, it seems like there's something that Paul writes in advance and it, and it seems like he's telling them, you know, I, I want you to be sensitive to Mark. I, I wrote you about this. And uh, so that when he comes, 
you welcome him. And, and the beautiful thing that we see about Mark, and of course, later he will be um, referred to by Peter, and he is the author of the second gospel, amazingly. Now, most, most people believe that Mark uh, penned at the dictation of Peter, that gospel. So scholars think that the gospel of Mark is, is the gospel of Peter. Mark is the, the one who wielded the pen. And so either way, uh, we know the gospel as the gospel of Mark. But the point is that Mark's past failure didn't stop him from future usefulness. And that's the gospel itself. And so we see even uh, amongst you know, these great men, these spiritual men, these godly men, Paul and, and Barnabas, they have a disagreement. It's, it's such an intense disagreement that they split over it. But the gospel brings reconciliation. The gospel brings healing. Uh, Mark leaves early, he bails out, he's fearful, he's whatever, but that wasn't the end of the story. He got another chance. And, and we've, you've heard this, no doubt. I've said it many times. Others have said it. Uh, thank God that he is the God of the second chance and the third and the fourth and the fifth. And, and right on down, God is merciful. And so we see that um, even though Mark failed at one point, uh, he became very useful for the ministry uh, at a later time. And so Paul refers to him there. And then he refers to this one named Jesus, who is called Justice. And so Jesus was a common name in those days. Of course, it would be Joshua or Yeshua would be the Hebrew way uh, to say it. Um, but as many people did, he also had an additional name and his name was Justice. Now, the thing about this one uh, Jesus, who is called Justice, he is completely unknown to us. There's no further references to him anywhere in Scripture. There are a few other justices that are mentioned, but it's not the same person. And so he's unknown to us in history, but he's known to Paul. He's known to the saints at the time. And most importantly, he's known to the Lord. And, and this is something that's important to remember for all of us. Um, you know, it's, it's not about human recognition. It's not about fame. It's not about, um, you know, serving in such a way that you gain all of this um, notoriety and so forth. I mean, sometimes in our world of the church, we can kind of get caught up in, in that kind of a thing where, um, you know, we, we want to be well-known and we want to have a name and we want people to, to know what we do. And that's a trap. It's a trap that we all need to be aware of and we need to be on guard against and we need to really watch out for. Um, the important thing is that we're known by the Lord. <laughs> that's the important thing. And, you know, there are many Christians, many, many Christians who will labor, faithfully serve God their entire lives and will never have any earthly recognition whatsoever. Now, Jesus, who was called Justice, I mean, he got a little bit of recognition. His name's in the Bible. The problem is we just don't know who he was. Uh, but, but there are people, you know, here in the, the United States, of course, we have um, in the church, we have celebrity um, 
churches, we have celebrity pastors, people whose names are well known, uh, people who have you know, tons of followers on social media, all of that sort of stuff. I mean, that, that's just part of our, our culture here. But you know, in India or in Africa or in uh, some you know, place down maybe in South America or just some, some obscure place in Siberia, there are people who are faithfully serving Christ, have served Christ, uh, who never were known outside of the small circle that they ministered, but they were known by the Lord. And um, one day, the things that they did will be known by all when the Lord reveals that to everybody. So just a word of encouragement. If, if you're unknown, if you feel like you're unappreciated, nobody really even knows that you exist, even though you've been faithfully doing that thing at the church for a long time, don't worry about it. It's okay, because the Lord knows and the Lord sees. So Paul then, he goes on and he says this though about these three people, Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus, who is called Justice. He says, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision they have proved to be a comfort to me. So Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus called justice, Paul, what's Paul saying? They're Jews, they're fellow Jews. And so he's got this small band of brothers, uh, in this case, who are Jewish. And there's a special comfort that they bring to Paul. I think it was just that, that connection, that nationality uh, that connection that they had there. Now, of course, there were many other Jews who were in Paul's life. Barnabas was a Jew. Uh, Apollos was a Jew. Aquila, Priscilla, they were Jews. But Paul's talking about in this moment, at this period in time, these three are the only um, Jewish believers who are there ministering with Paul. And now we come to Epaphras. So Epaphras he is mentioned three times and he's from Colossae. Look at what Paul says. Epaphras, who is one of you. So speaking of the Colossians, he's one of you. He's a bondservant. In other words, he's a doulos. He's, he's one of those people who has gladly given up his rights to serve another. And he greets you. And then listen to what Paul says about him. He says, uh, for I bear him or he says, laboring fervently for you in prayer that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. So, so this man, Epaphras, um, he is also a fellow prisoner. And we'll come back to that again, as I said later. But notice what Paul says about him. He says that he labors fervently for you in prayer that you may stand perfect and complete in the will of God. So Epaphras is a Colossian. He's, like we said earlier, he's probably the one who was responsible for the existence of the church in Colossae. But he's with Paul. He's a fellow prisoner with Paul. Remember, Paul is writing this letter from prison. And Epaphras, his heart is for the people for the people in Colossae. So he can't minister to them because he's restricted because of imprisonment. But what does he do? He prays for them. He labors fervently for them in prayer. And we've talked about this. We talked about this in our previous study. 
but it just seems to keep coming up again and again. And for good reason, we need to remember the power of prayer. You know, we need to remember that what is humanly impossible is possible with God. We, re- we need to remember that when we have little strength to affect any change, that God is not limited. And we have this amazing uh, access to him. And so for, I-, I love this too, for the church, Epaphras labors for them in prayer. He's praying for them that, as, he, as Paul says here, he's praying for them that they may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. And, and as we pray, and, and again, let me remind you, um, you have this access to God in prayer. And many who are viewing from home, you haven't uh, perhaps even been on the church grounds or been in the church building for months and months. Uh, but you know, you can still minister and you can minister through prayer. And I, I hope that you're praying for us and, and we're praying for you. But as we look at our world and as we look at uh, our nation in particular, and we see all of the, the strife and the trouble and the contention and the perplexity, because it's a perplexing thing. Uh, how is this ever going to get solved? Well, prayer. Prayer is the, it, it's the weapon that we have as the people of God and we need to recognize uh, the privilege of it. We need to recognize the power of it. And like Epaphras, we need to be zealous in prayer. And he says that he was zealous in prayer for the Colossians and not just the Colossians, but Laodicea, which was a city that was nearby and Hierapolis where there were fellowships there. Um, He has that same zeal for them. So, Then verse 14, we move on to another familiar name, and that is Luke, the beloved physician. Luke. Now we know Luke because we have uh, the third gospel is the gospel according to Luke. And yes, it is the same person. He is the author of the gospel according to Luke, and he is also the author of the book of Acts. And we know that Luke was a physician, We know that he was a Greek. We know that he joined Paul uh, about the time that Paul came into Macedonia uh, because in the the historical account in Acts, um, it's all in uh, the second and third person recording it. And then there's a certain point where it's suddenly in the first person, uh, the, the writer is included in the journey. And we went to... And so that's Luke. And so Luke was a, a, a partner in the ministry with Paul. Uh, he was a beloved physician. And so it, because Paul refers to him in that way, uh, he probably used those, the, that medical know-how and that gifting and ability that he had medically, he probably ministered to Paul and to the other team. And so he was... Uh, that was part of his contribution, the beloved physician. But you know, if you, if you think about it for a second, and just go off on Luke here for a moment, but um, you know, so Luke's a trained physician. Uh, he's obviously got a, a good mind, um, you know, that he's able to 
research and study and do those things. And, and when you look at Luke and Acts, you find that he is equally a great historian. As a matter of fact, uh, the book of Acts is, um, from a historical standpoint, it is probably the um, most accurate history uh, in the, uh, from antiquity, from, from the ancient world. And people have marveled, even unbelievers, people who don't believe the Bible to be inspired, they've marveled at the amazing geographical and historical and uh, cultural um, understanding of Luke that comes out in his gospel. And so, um, and again, the point that I want to make here, because we're talking about, you know, God using us, different giftings and things. So Luke's a physician by trade, but he's also a minister of the gospel and he is a, um, he becomes actually uh, a recorder of scripture. He writes down uh, the story of the gospel. And so Luke is there included. And then we have Demas. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Now, anybody who's read through Paul's letters, this is what you will remember. And this is a sad moment because Demas, although here he is part of Paul's team, we know from Paul's letter to Timothy, his second letter, that at a certain point, Demas left him. And Paul wrote these words concerning Demas. He says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. And so a very sad situation. We don't know anything more about Demas. That's the last word on him. Did he come back around? We don't know. But here's a man who was part of that uh, inner circle with the apostle Paul. And yet the love for the world drew him away. And we have to always be on our guard. The world uh, is, is powerful and it can allure us. And even if you're in the inner circle of ministry, uh, you can be tempted and you can be, you can be drawn away by the enticements of the world. So we, we have to always be on our guard against these things. You know, having been part of this apostolic team was no guarantee that he was going to be um, safe from temptation. And obviously he wasn't. And sadly, Demas succumbed to that temptation. So we come now to a woman in this list. And so we read here about this woman, Nymphus. Greet the brethren who were in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church that is in her house. Now, I'm reading from the New King James Version and the New King James and the Old King James uh, have Nymphus as, in the, as, a, as a male, uh, the church in his house. But all of the other manuscripts read her and, and I think accurately her because this is a female, this is a name of a female. And, you know, in some, some of the translations, some people were not so sure they wanted to acknowledge women in any role that might look like a leadership role or something like that. I think that was the bias sometimes of the translators. But we have all of these manuscripts that support um, 
and, and the name again, that this was a woman. And so just like we had Lydia in, uh, in Philippi, so this woman, Nymphus, she has a church in her house. And church in the house was common at that time. Well, churches weren't exclusively in the house, but they were oftentimes in people's houses. And then we come finally, here's the final mention, and we come to um, verse 17. We come to this, uh, this person, Archippus or Archippus. Again, pronunciation is debatable. Um, but here's a word for Archippus. But first, verse 16 says, now when this epistle is read among you, the Colossians, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea and say to Archippus. So it's almost like Paul's gone through all of this and then he remembers Archippus. And he says this, he says, say to him, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. Now, we don't know anything about Archippus and we don't know anything about um, his background. Obviously, he had received a ministry from the Lord, but we don't know if he was uh, just being negligent if he was being careless. And so this is a word of um, exhortation, you know, take serious the ministry, Archippus. Or perhaps it wasn't that, perhaps it was discouragement. Perhaps he was feeling discouraged. Perhaps he was wanting to give up. Perhaps he was feeling defeated. Uh, we don't know, again, exactly what it was, but Paul... Either way, he reminds him that the ministry he received was from the Lord. Now, if he was negligent, the message, the reminder that he had received the ministry from the Lord, that would kind of, you know, snap him out of that negligence. Say, wow, you know, this is, a, this is a work for God. I need to take this seriously. If he was discouraged and feel like giving up or feeling like giving up, then, then it might have been that it was suddenly like, oh yes, God, God gave me this. I, why am I discouraged? This is a ministry that I received from the Lord. And so then through that kind of encouragement, moving ahead to fulfill it. But again, either way, we don't know exactly what it was, but let's just say for all of us, God puts a call on our lives. He gives us things to do and we need to recognize that it's from him. It's actually the Lord who gives uh, his servants task. It's not me as a pastor who gives you a task. It's not some other leader who gives you a task. Um, it's the Lord. He gives us these things to do. As we say, Lord, I'm yours. I want to follow you. I want to be your servant. Now he uses people oftentimes to put us in place, but we need to look beyond the person and recognize, no, this is from the Lord. And so since it's from the Lord, I need to fulfill it, meaning I need to be faithful to it. And so we come to the final word, this salutation by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains. 
Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. So, a couple of things that I want to leave us with as we wrap things up. First of all, remember. And so we, we went through Philippians and then we went through Colossians. It's kind of where we've been for the year up until this point. And in both cases, we've seen and been reminded of this partnership in the gospel, this togetherness uh, for the gospel. And, you know, I believe that the Lord leads us into different places for teaching because he wants to speak things to us at different times. And, and I really believe that God is wanting to speak to us uh, about this whole thing of, of us being together as the people of God serving together. And, and I wanna just give a word of encouragement to those of you that maybe have yet to re-engage with church, coming to church. I, I wanna encourage you to you know, really pray about that because it's important that we are together. And um, we don't wanna let fear dominate us. You know, I just read today from the CDC, just came out today, um, that that uh, basically in all age categories from the youngest right up through the 70s, uh, that 99% of the people who contract COVID survive. 99% all across all age groups. And so that's, you know, that puts things in perspective. Now, I'm not saying that we should go wild and be crazy and be irresponsible. Uh, I don't think we should do that. But I do think if we're still you know, huddled away, locked down, afraid to go out and be around people, afraid to be, especially with believers, we need to reconsider that. And we need to ask the Lord, you know, Lord, show me how I, I need to re-engage because we need to have the connection with one another. And that's, that's my point. Um, all for one and one for all. That's what we could say. That's like, for the church, all for one, we're all for Christ and each one of us are for all of God's people. So we're all in it together for Christ and each of us individually, we're in it together with one another. So everyone has their part to play, their work to do for the kingdom, but we don't do it alone. And we see that again, coming back to what I said originally with Paul, we see that, that even Paul uh, did not do it alone. And even as a church, we cannot do it alone. Remember, the letter is to the church in Colossae, but, but what does Paul say? Share the letter with the Laodiceans. And Epaphras is praying, not just for uh, Colossae, but he's praying for Laodicea. He's praying for Hierapolis. And as a church, we cannot do it alone. We need each other. You know, we live in a county of 3 million people. Uh, we live in a state of, we, we have more people in our state than any other state in the union. I think 40 million people or so now. And, um, you know, we, we are not sufficient. We cannot alone uh, impact our, our city, our county, our state, our nation for the gospel. We have to be in it together. 
And so I want to encourage you personally, pray and look for those God will knit your hearts with for the gospel. And God will bring people around you and, and give you a passion and a vision and a cause. And I, I, I just am thinking of a group of people in the church right now who God brought them together around our mission to the UK with uh, our, create, our Creation Fest Festival. And that was their initial sort of bonding. But, you know, they've just become this tight-knit group who uh, are involved in all different kinds of ministry, but they're in it together. They're praying for one another. Uh, one of the members of the group, a nurse, a good friend, uh, was uh, at the beginning of COVID. She was in Italy. They're, uh, you know, ministering where the crisis was happening with the coronavirus in Italy. And, and that whole team was praying for her, supporting her. Recently, she went to Lebanon because, you know, we had that, they had that big disastrous thing in Lebanon with that massive explosion and all of those deaths and, and all of that that occurred. And uh, she went with a team from Samaritan's Purse and, and she was there for a few weeks. But my point is, she had this, this team of people cheering her on, rooting for her, praying for her, while she was there. And other people in the group are doing different things. But this is the way God does it. He brings people together around the gospel. And that's the people that we want to be. We want to be the people that are working together for the gospel. And final word, I want to just go back to what I mentioned earlier. Paul says, remember my chains. It's kind of a sober ending there with just that, remember my chains. And, and Paul is not looking for sympathy at all. Paul wasn't that kind of a person, uh, but Paul was uh, looking for solidarity. And he was reminding them again of this whole idea that, that if one is bound, then we're, we're bound with them. And so Paul, Aristarchus, and Epaphras were all in chains for the gospel. So the author and then two others in this list here uh, they were imprisoned for the gospel. It's a sobering reminder. It's a sobering reminder that gospel work can be dangerous work and at times can only be advanced through sacrifice and suffering. You see, it was through Paul's suffering in the prison that the gospel was actually advancing. Remember, he had said to the Ephesians that he was a prisoner of Jesus Christ for the sake of the Gentiles. And so the, just the idea of imprisonment, the idea of suffering for the gospel's sake, that is relatively foreign to so many of us in the West and in the United States. But this is the norm this, has been, this was the norm in the New Testament period. It's been the norm historically for the church. And it might become the norm even for North Americans uh, in the not too distant future. But we have to remember that even though it's dangerous, can be dangerous, it's, it's worth the risk. Uh, even though it, it calls for sacrifice, it's worth the cost. And so for us, let's go forward together for the gospel, whatever the risk, whatever the cost, and remembering that the gospel is even 
available to us because Jesus, he faced the danger and he went to the cross. He sacrificed everything. He paid uh, the ultimate price, but he did that for us. And so God help us to do that um, for one another with him as our model.